Some of you are going, I picked this week to show up. <laughs> this week. And I don't blame you because uh, in case you can't tell, just I, I have yet to say the word because it just makes me nervous to stand up in front of people and say the word sex, right? It just does. Makes me uncomfortable. Um, I hope at the, after the end of this, this talk, it won't make you as uncomfortable because I think it's a discussion that we, as the church, avoid way too often that we need to be willing to have, and we'll get into reasons why in a second. But um, So if there is any parent here who feels like their kid does not need to hear this, then now's the time to run away. John kneeled, <laughs> is taking his son. <laughs> it's fine. That's fine. That's fine. Oh my goodness. How, why, why does that not surprise me that it's John Neal? All right. So why are we talking about this? Why are we talking about this? Well, I'll give you two reasons. First, because for at least a season, sex is a profound part of our lives and our journey, for at least a season in our lives. And it seems that it influences the decisions we make, it influences the relationships we build, it influ we're influenced by it all the time and, and the, the advertisements that we see and the world around us that we see. And it seems remiss to avoid discussing something that has such a profound impact on so many people, especially since God provides a lot of counsel on it. Because it's mentioned many times or alluded to many times from the book of Genesis on. It was an issue in the church of, in Corinth. It was an issue in Ephesus. It was an issue in the Jewish church and with the Jewish people and their choices and decisions that they made. And God gives a lot of counsel on it. And we avoid it like the plague because it makes us all feel uncomfortable or awkward to discuss. And again, I'm standing up here as awkward as you are about it. The second thing, reason is it, there is a ridiculous amount of misinformation available on the subject. All you have to do is look around. It misdirects our priorities. It cheapens the role of, of sex in forming bonds that are so critical to marriage. And it destroys people and relationships. An unhealthy perspective on this thing can destroy relationships that otherwise are, we would think, are very strong. If you've ever seen or met somebody addicted to pornography, it can destroy a marriage in a heartbeat. In a heartbeat. So even for those who do not find themselves in a season where this is governing your heart and your thoughts and your, and your actions, I want to encourage you to listen anyways. Uh, because God's people need to be a voice that helps redirect people's priorities, that elevates the other's views of sex and, the, and its role in a healthy relationship, and that build up the way that we see ourselves and each other. We need to be that voice. We need to be willing to at least be brave enough to have the discussion, because if we don't, the world will. And I don't trust the world. <laughs> you know, I don't know if most of you know my story. I did not grow up in a church. And my parents are awesome. I love them. 
but we never talked about this. And I had some really unhealthy perspectives on what this is, on its role in my life and my role in my relationships. And it, it destroyed a lot in my world, okay? Because it, just because I saw things wrong. And so it's important to me that we see what's right, that we see what's righteous, that we understand that there is a godly call here and that that godly call matters and that our voice in the world matters. Now, here's what we're not going to have. We're not going to have a lengthy discussion on hows, whys, and whats. That is not going to happen. We are not going to talk about the birds and the bees per se. That's something you need to discuss with your families in your homes, and yes, you should have that discussion. What we are going to assume right out of the gate is that everyone knows exactly what this is. Yes? Okay. We may have a different perspective on how it should be, but we know what the word sex means. Yes? Can I get a yes? Oh, good, because I really didn't want to go there. (laughs) Didn't want to go there. Our source text today is actually out out of Mark chapter 10. It's verses 5 through 9. And um, this text is actually Jesus admonishing the Pharisees about their views on divorce. And you say, well, why would he pick that for this talk? And the reason is because marriage and sex are heavily intertwined. What applies to one in God's counsel often applies to the other, and I hope you will see that as we go. And we will make references because it's in here too. In this, in this too, but this is our source text for the day. It says this, it says, but Jesus told them, he wrote this command for you, that means God, wrote this command for you because of the hardness of your hearts. But from the beginning of creation, God made them, male and female. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh, and therefore what God has joined together, let no one separate. Our first point we want to look at is is the difference between what is permissible and what is beneficial. Okay? I have a friend, I had a friend in high school who um, stole a lot of things. I've mentioned him before. He shall remain nameless. And he was forever calling me and asking me if I wanted to go with him. The answer was always no, not because I didn't think it was intriguing, because I did, but because there was something about the idea that just scared the bejeemonies out of me and should have, right? So that was an obvious one, kind of like this. Can you put the slide up? There you go. Can I ask you a question? Who in this slide is going to die? Everybody in the red shirt, right? If you know what this is, if you don't know what this is, maybe you're blessed for having not been exposed to it. But Star Trek, if you knew, I don't know, man, I don't know. If if Jim Kirk ever came to me and said, I need you to go on an away team, because that's what they called him, I need you to go on an away team with me, and I was wearing a red uniform, I might have gone, no way. 
Ain't no way. Because you know the dude in the red ain't coming back. Or he's going to get turned into some monster creature. He's going to get eaten alive. He's going to burst into nothingness with a phaser blast. Who knows? But it was not going to end well. And sometimes we're presented with opportunities that should be that obvious, right? You know, I knew I should not go with my friend to rob people. I knew that was a bad idea, right? We think? Yes, you think that's a bad idea? Yes, it's a bad idea, and it should be obvious that we would know that, right? If I'm presented with an opportunity to punch a police officer, probably a bad idea. I should probably say no, and some of them are very, very obvious, but there are the things that we encounter in life that are not that obvious, and I think sex and the way the world talks about sex is one of those things. It's really the way that Satan seduces us. It's Satan's seduction, and it started in Genesis chapter 3 with the fall, right? says, now the serpent was the most cunning of all the wild animals that the Lord had made. And he said to the woman, did God really say you can't eat from any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat the fruit from the trees in the garden, just not this one, <laughs> right? It says, but about, but about the fruit of the, of the tree in the middle of the garden, God said, you must not eat it or touch it or you will die. He says, no, you won't die. The serpent said to the woman, in fact, God knows that when you eat, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. This is his seduction. His seduction is, look, you have this fear that, that something's gonna go horribly wrong. But if you try it, you're gonna find out you're not going to immediately die. Right? I, uh, I used to, okay, James, I wish James was here. James gives me all kinds of trouble for my driving, okay? You should know that I'm about a million percent safer a driver than I used to be. I mean, seriously, you should have seen my insurance rates when I was in my 20s. It's not good. But, you know, as a teenager, I did a lot of really dumb things with cars. Really dumb things. I hit things, I ran into stuff, I tried to see how fast I could take corners that I had no business trying to take. I passed people on bridges at 100 miles an hour. I'd go into the berm and pass people on a bridge. And Marilyn's shaking her head going, what was wrong with you? <laughs> That's a list that we're not going to cover that today. <laughs> I did a lot of really, really stupid things. And you know what? The, every time I got away with one of them, right? I was like, oh, yeah, I can do that again, or I can do even more. Embarrassingly, when I was in my early 20s, I would often go to a bar after work and drink, and then I would drive home. Dumb? On about how many levels? A thousand. Huh? Only by the grace of God am I here. But I, I'm here to tell you that I, I had an incident one night on a, on, I was driving home, and I was following some people that I worked with home, and we lived in the same apartment complex, and it, the speed limit was 45. It was down near Polaris, and I went around them 
at about probably 85 or 90. And I go past them. And as soon as I get past them, lights, right? Right? Cop pulls me over, says, you know how fast you were going? I said, nope. He gets my license, runs back, and I'm thinking what? I'm, I'm going to jail, right? Guy comes back to my car, hands me back my license, and goes, do you know who I am? I said, no. He goes, I'm your neighbor. I live right above you. Right? He goes, so here's what's going to happen. I'm going to follow you back to the apartment complex. And you're going to get out of your car, and you're going to go in your house. And so help me, if I ever see you again speeding or otherwise, which means he knew that I was drunk as a skunk, you're going to jail. Huh? That's called grace. That's called mercy. We were talking about that in the kids' class this morning. That's called mercy. My friends who had seen me get pulled over, I get home, they're calling me going, drive over here. I'm like, no way! That that is not going to happen! But I have to tell you that had he not... It is only by the grace of God because if he had not done that, I'm not sure I would have seen that I was doing something I shouldn't have been doing because I got away with it repeatedly. I got away with it repeatedly with no negative impacts, no issues, no problems, no nothing. And Satan here is trying to convince Adam and Eve that there won't be an immediate impact that they won't feel something horrible. They won't die. In fact, there will be some good things that will come from this. And so they very quickly, both of them, Adam and Eve, rationalize, okay, if there's not going to be an immediate negative impact, then why don't I give it a shot? When it comes to sexual activity, That is often the same seduction that Satan uses. If I've done something I shouldn't have done, if I've watched porn or if I've slept with somebody outside of marriage or if I've done those things and we get back to the house the next day or we turn the computer off the next day and the sky didn't fall and I didn't die, then we go, okay, it didn't go nearly as south as I thought. Maybe I can do that again. And before you, before you know it, instead of you owning that piece of who you are, you are now a slave to misinformation and misdirection and Satan himself. It's seduction. It looks good on the, on the surface. The risks seem mitigated. It seems for the moment in time it's worth it. And you wake up one morning and realize you are in a world of hurt. The problem with only being that short-sighted is that we're rolling with, really with our feelings. 
And the problem with feelings is that oftentimes when it comes to the things of the heart, your present self lies to your future self. It helps you rationalize doing something you feel like you want to do in the moment and ignore the possibilities, ignore the implications, ignore what could happen down the road because that's so far away. Surely, surely I'll fix it before then. It's very short-sighted, but God is eternal. God sees not only who we are, but who we can be. And that's important for us to understand because as, as we consider this issue of sexuality, when God is, is calling you to something, he's calling you. He doesn't just throw down these rules about how you should act and how you should treat one another and monogamy and marriage and all of those things that I think all of us know that we hear the Bible says. It's not because he wants to be difficult. It's because he sees who you can be. He sees who you were made to be even if you can't. And so he calls us to these things because he wants to protect us. Make sense? So in our source text today, it says that God gave these commands or allowed for these commands because your heart was hardened. The problem with hardened hearts is that they are misdirected. They, that they cheapen the value of sex, they, they turn it into nothing more than this self-seeking primal urge. It is what it is, and you need to deal with it and solve it right now, but it is so much more than that. It makes it, it, makes it seem like this, it's this instrument of, of status. I don't know about you, but when I was in high school, it was a status thing. It was, did you, did you manage to? Right? And even amongst my group of friends, if one of us happened to be lucky enough, then we cheered for him. We cheered for that person. Now, I hope you wouldn't do that, but can I just tell you that's the direction the world will take you and still takes our kids, especially boys. It's a conquest. It's a status symbol. Billy Graham says this. He says, peer pressure, which is what that is, accounts for much of the promiscuous sex in high schools and college. Can form or get lost since no one enjoys losing friends or being cast out of his own circle. Peer pressure, especially during the years of adolescence, is almost an irresistible force. It's this, this push in the society around them that says, unless you have engaged in sexual activity outside of marriage, unless you've conquered a girl, which I got to tell you informs this horribly nasty, power-laden view of sex, and it enforces rape culture, just so we're clear on that. Didn't think I'd say that word this morning, did you? But it does. We're fighting that every day. And when, we're, when our hearts are hardened, when we are misdirected, we, we begin to see sex is merely that. It's merely a way of showing power. It's merely a way of gaining status. Or it's merely a way of meeting some primal urge or need that has to happen. And if we're not willing to talk about that misdirection with people, the society will tell our kids that that is what it's for. 
And so when we clam up as the church and we get nervous when somebody mentions that word or we don't want to have the talk with our kids or we don't want to confront one another when we're having these issues, we are letting society continue to misdirect us, to cheapen what God has made this to be. It cheapens our value of people too. In 2 Samuel chapter 11, we see the, the story of David and Bathsheba, right? If you know the story, David sees this woman on, a, on, on top of her roof taking a bath, and he decides that that's something he wants to conquest. And so he invites her over to his house, and they consummate it. Because he's convinced himself that that, that thing in the moment that he wants, that primal urge that he needs to, to, to fulfill. He thinks he has a right to fulfill. He thinks this is good. It will be a victimless crime. Nobody will notice. If you know the story, it wasn't victimless. It destroyed Bathsheba's marriage. It cost Uriah his life. It made Joab a liar. It cost their baby its life. It infected Solomon, who ended up with 300 wives and 700 concubines for all the man's wisdom. One of the wisest people to ever live was misdirected. It, his, that choice affected David's family for generations. Generations. Because he had devalued it so much as just this thing, this part of what it means to be human, this, this desire to fulfill this emotion in the moment and belief that he should, he destroyed and set the tone for a downhill slide for honestly, for all of Israel in his case. Our unwillingness to, to deal with hardened hearts, our unwillingness to discuss this with each other openly when we're having challenges or with our kids or with our families sets a tone that generations from now will impact many more than just the one person we should talk to. We have to be willing to talk about this, uncomfortable or not, because hardened hearts are misdirected. Now, softened hearts can be redirected. Softened hearts can experience the intimacy that this is intended, intended to convey. Sex is supposed to have, be a very intimate and unique relationship. 1 Corinthians 7, 3 says, A wife does not have the right over her own body, but her husband does. In the same way, a husband does not have the right over his own body, but his wife does. Do you hear the submission there? Do you hear this, this, this connection, this submission to one another, this willingness to give up on that that. That, that primal urge, that power, that status, that all of those things that are tied to sex by the world and, and say, you know what, is meant to be so much more. It is meant to be a giving, not a taking. 
It is meant to be connecting. It is meant to be healing. It is meant to be bonding. But we have to be willing to to soften our hearts enough to let that sink in. We have to be willing to honestly pitch everything we hear outside of the, the Lord's word. Pitch it. It's garbage. It's designed to misdirect you. It's designed by Satan himself to pull you away from the intimacy you're intended to have with someone in a unique relationship that is very, very, very special. And we'll talk about that in a minute, why that matters. Author Joy McMillan says when she's talking about sex, it says if we're not intentional about pursuing God's best for our marriages and grasping the tremendous role that intimacy plays in that relationship. What was intended to be deeply enjoyed, a passionate, life-giving love affair, alight with laughter and fiercely protected and drenched in freedom. And she says it will become a burden and a curse. If we're not able... To, to soften our hearts to the place where we can see and experience what God has intended for it, to set aside the garbage that hardens our hearts, that causes us to see it as something superficial, then we are unable to experience it. And in fact, it, come, it, it stops being a thing that creates, that is a life-giving piece of intimacy and actually becomes a heavy weight a weight that will drag you down. Wow, you can hear a pin drop in here. (laughs) If our hearts are softened, it also helps us appreciate each other as God's creations. Can you flip slides? There you go. I use this analogy often, and it's not globally true, but it is pretty consistently true. Women, as a general rule, are spaghetti, and men are waffles. I mean, I would eat either one, right? But women are spaghetti, men are waffles. Let me, let me help you understand. When it comes to connectivity and relationship, Women do an incredibly good job of staying connected. In other words, if they are angry at you for something stupid that you have done, which unfortunately is part of my life, um, it will affect, because it's connected, it will affect the other aspects of that relationship, including the sexual aspect of your relationship. Make sense? Men, however, often function as waffles. One square can be horribly bad. We could be having a fight, and a man can jump out of that square and into the next square, and the next square is fabulous, totally disconnected from it. You laugh because it's true right? It's totally true. When, 
When, when we are able to have a soft enough heart that we can see that because we can appreciate the differences in one another and what each of us brings to the table because I see so many fights in relationships that, that this is really the source of the problem is that they, they don't see each other as God's creations and they can't understand each other. The spaghetti lady cannot understand the waffle guy. He cannot, she cannot understand how you could make me mad and then expect us to have sex. I just, I don't understand how you could possibly do that. And he's going, I don't have that problem. I don't understand why you can't. This has nothing to do with that. It has everything to do with that. Everything. But with the, the bottom line is when we're not getting what we want out of a relationship, whatever that is, instead of trying to understand the differences in the way that we see the world, we get angry with each other. We get mad. We say, you're not meeting my needs. You're not doing what I want you to do. And it turns into this ugly, nasty, and a lot of it, happens around sex. It happens around that thing. Because, again, for a, a part of our lives, whether you realize it or not, it affects you greatly. Most of us, it affects greatly. And I think it's the reason why Paul says it'd be better if you didn't have to get married. Right? He says, this is not a command. This is just my advice to you. It'd be better that you just not even get into that world. Because it is, it can be tension-filled if we're not able to see each other, if we're not able to understand each other. We're going to talk about food more before this is over. But, so if you're hungry after you leave here today, totally get it. But just keep this in mind. The next time you're having a conflict in your relationship over this, try to remember that one of you is spaghetti and the other one was waffle, and you're both created by God. And you both bring a valid perspective. And you both need to work very hard to see the other person as God created them. Make sense? Okay. That's as close to sexual advice as you're going to get from me today. All right? All right. So, hardened hearts, softened hearts. Ooh, yeah. So what else does this text teach us about sex? It says that this is a bond like no other, is what this teaches us. In verses 6 and 7, let me remind you, it says, But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother, and the two will become one flesh. This is a, a retelling of Genesis chapter 2, 24 and 25. It says this way. It says, this is why a man leaves his father and mother and bonds with his wife that they become one flesh. And both the man and his wife were naked and yet felt no shame. It's interesting that the, the two relationships that God makes much of prior to the fall are the relationship between man and God and between man and woman. The intention of marriage and sex both, and that's why I said they're intertwined, they are, is to be a godly relationship that represents in some ways the closest thing to what it means 
to be close to God that we can get to on this earth. Have you ever read the book of Hosea? If you've never read the book of Hosea, oh my goodness. The entire story is about a man who marries a woman who cheats on him. And then he takes her back. And then she cheats on him again and runs away. And he takes her back. The whole book is like that. She takes off again and he takes her back. He's angry. He doesn't understand, but he does it anyways. It's designed to be an analogy to help us understand that's how God feels when we fall away from him and he feels like he has to chase us down and bring us back. It hurts. Because that bond was intended to be formed once and never be broken. Right? That bond between us and God was intended to be formed once and never be broken. The bond between Hosea and his wife, Gomer, was intended to be formed once and never be broken. When we don't understand that, we see sex as far less critical to maintaining a healthy, tightly bonded relationship. If you are blessed to be married, it is intended to be a unique relationship. It says in our text, they will leave behind their father and their mother. Now, until you're married or as you're a child, who are the most important people in your life? Mom and dad, right? What is it? Mom is God on the mouths of children or on the lips of children. Mom and dad. But there's something special about this marriage relationship that is designed to supersede that. In a perfect world, your connectedness with your spouse is far beyond your connectedness with anyone else. In a perfect world. I really believe God designed it that way so we would begin to understand in some, at some level the level of connectivity he wants us to have with him. It's no wonder that the church is called the what of Christ? The bride of Christ. We're intended to have an intimate relationship with him where we trust each other, we love each other, we're encouraged by one another, all of those things. And marriage is the closest thing we get. And what does that have to do with sex? If sex, this thing that's supposed to be a bonding part of marriage, at least for a season, they become one flesh, that means they're having, right? Okay. See, I can't even say the word. I'm trying to avoid that. It's intended to be this unique, incredible bond. But if, you're, if your list of people that you've been around is this long, is it unique anymore? If you're watching porn and you're getting those feelings and those endorphins are getting busted loose, is it unique anymore? It's not. And you are missing out on the intimacy that God has desired for you. 
It's far less about the act itself and far more about understanding that God has given us an opportunity to be in an incredibly deep and connected relationship and we chuck it to the curb to do what we feel like doing in the moment. I cannot say enough that you are missing out on an opportunity to to experience something amazing. And we need to be telling our kids that. And we need to be telling each other that if we see each other struggling with things. Because we don't. Because that three-letter word still makes us nervous and awkward. And it shouldn't. Because somebody I know created it. Who was it? God. Okay? So, marriage and sex have their roots in the perfection that God has intended from the beginning of time. It resembles at least as much as it it can God's intended relationship with us. One that is pure. Notice they were naked in the garden and they felt no shame. One that is pure, shameless, monogamous, and eternal. And sex, whether we want it to or not, plays a big role in that. So our final discussion is about food again. It's what I call the s'more principle. Okay? The s'more principle. Okay? Verses 8 and 9 said, So there are no longer two but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. Have you ever eaten a s'more? Okay. So you get these three incredible things, graham crackers, marshmallows, and chocolate, and then you heat them up, right? You heat them up and you smash them together and you have all this gooey goodness that is awesome. Have you ever pulled apart a s'more? First of all, I would question your wisdom if you're pulling apart a s'more, right? You put it in your mouth and you eat it, right? That's what you do with a s'more. But if you've ever pulled apart a s'more, what happens is you make a big, fat, ugly, nasty mess The chocolate is now mixed with the marshmallow. There's graham cracker pieces all over the place. You can't get rid of them. Okay? The notion behind both the marriage and the sexual relationship is that when that connection happens, it is a bit like making a s'more. You are taking good things and putting God in the middle and squishing them together, and making something amazing. But if you pull them back apart, it makes a mess, and it leaves bits and pieces in places where bits and pieces should not be. I really believe, and this is personal experience, I really believe that if you have sex with somebody and then pull away from them, you leave a piece of yourself with them. Have you ever met somebody who's had many, many, many sexual partners? They begin to get numb. And I really believe they're numb because they've left parts of who they are with that person. Now, here's the upside. God can restore that. God can. God can restore you. God can make you whole. God can make it all well and good and make it come back. But 
Why would you ever want to choose to tear apart pieces of yourself and leave it with others? The world would have us believe that that doesn't happen. There's no tie, there's no bond, it's just an emotional, just a one-nighter, just an experience, just a thing, just a whatever, friends with benefits, Netflix and chill, those are all, all terms that you need to know, okay? That's so much of a lie. The bond, the unique bond that is created, the intimacy that comes in having sex is not something that should be thrown about frivolously because you will leave a piece of yourself with that person. Don't do that to yourself. Because if if your present self is telling you to do it, it's lying to your future self. You're giving up part of who you are, whether you believe it or not. And if you do it enough times, there'll be none of you left. God doesn't want that for you. And that's the case with having sex or watching porn or whatever it is that's yanking you away from what God intends this to be, from what he intends it to mean. And we have to be brave enough as the church to have those discussions with people that are important to us. Because I feel like we don't. Because it makes us nervous. And it will. It will make you really uncomfortable. But is that a bad thing? God calls me to be uncomfortable on a daily basis. Causes me to have discussions I do not want to have like the last 30 minutes. But every time, if I, can, if I can wade into that, I get to watch him work. I get to see something incredible happen. Any questions? Oh, good, because I didn't want to answer them. All right, so. Whew. All right. So we're about to... Um, draw our service to a close. I would need our prayer warriors to come forward if they'd be willing to do that, please. We, we choose this time at the end of our service to um, pray for one another, to make public prayer requests known so that we can, we can openly pray for each other. We'll listen to some music. We also will have a couple of prayer warriors here up front that if you have something that you don't want the whole free world to know, but that you want to talk about, that you want to lay at the feet of God, that you want to ask us to intercede for you, that is what they are for. Because not every prayer should go to the whole free world. Can you come up? I didn't ask a girl. I feel like I need a girl. Yeah, I love you too. Rock on. Okay, so... I'm going to read off this, some public prayers. I would like to ask everybody to stand because it's less awkward to get out of your seat and come up front if everybody's already standing. I'm going to read off our public prayers, some things that were listed to us this morning before church even started. They wanted to lay at the Lord's feet. The first is this. Gregory has asked us to pray for the shooting at Christ Church. 
Christchurch, New Zealand. Two mosques were broken into and I think 49 people is what I heard were shot and killed. We pray for those who were affected by that, for their families and their friends and their loved ones. We pray as much as we don't want to some, we pray for the shooters too. We pray for their hearts and their souls to see and know the Lord and realize the error of their ways and to come back to him. We'd like to also praise God today for Diane Hickey's surgery and Randy McCullery's surgery and Rita Helmendahler's surgery, that they all came out of it safely and successfully. Praise God for that. We pray for them to continue to heal, to get better, to get stronger. We know that we serve the great healer and the great healer can do just that. We pray for the Jervis's grandson, Spencer. He's had throat issues this week that are making it difficult for him. We pray that those be dealt with. We pray for Tisha Young, Travis Young's wife. She's having eye surgery on April 2nd. And we pray for everything to come in line, for miraculous things to happen and for it to be all healed and all be made well because we know God can. Pray for Becky Carr. It's Kim's, I mean. Pray for Becky Carr. She's in the hospital with pneumonia. Diane Hartzler's sister. She has been struggling with cancer for years. But pneumonia, usually it's, it's those extra illnesses that take people from our lives. And she is not getting better. And she needs an intervention from God. She needs God to step in. She needs God to heal her of this pneumonia. She needs God to, well, let's go for all of it. God can heal from the cancer too, right? Yes, he can. We know that he can do that. And she asked for prayers. We pray today for Bernice Roby, for Barb's mom. Have you ever met Bernice? If you have not, you are missing out. She is an incredible woman who will make your heart sing and will make you feel like the most special person on the planet while she talks to you. She is an amazing lady. Peg Smith is asked to pray for Ruth Oglesby today. She had back surgery, but the wound is refusing to heal. That can't be good. Are there any other prayers? Pray for the troops. Holly would love for us to pray for the troops because she always wants us to pray for the troops. Our prayer warriors will be here up front for a few minutes after church if you'd like to speak to them. But let's go to the Lord in prayer as we close. Father God, we've had a lot to think about today, a lot to consider. We know that there is a lot of misdirection out there in the world regarding this issue of sex and its role in our lives and what it means and the impact that it has, but we know that you created it for something amazing. We pray that we will see it that way, that we will be able to set aside all those that misinformation and misdirection, that we will know that you created it to glorify you and that we will have, most importantly, the courage to talk to others about it, even in the midst of our nervousness. God, I pray for those who feel like us more ripped apart. 
that feel like they've left pieces of themselves with others. Lord, I pray for healing today. I know you can provide that. I pray for you to make them whole as only you can. I pray that you will give those who are continuing to be stuck in those things strength, clarity, that you will close doors and, and, and open others that are better for them, that you will give them the resources and the, the counsel and the presence of the Spirit that they need in their lives to make those changes, to become who you desire them to be. You'll give them the strength to ignore their present self and see the future self you have called them to be and know they can be and design them to be. Father God, I'm thankful for your ongoing healing and your strength. I say all of these people that we're praying for today, I pray that you will keep them on our hearts and minds all week. We pray for healing so many people that are dealing with cancer and pneumonia and surgery and wounds and all of these things that harm our physical bodies that make us hard and make it harder on us honestly to see you sometimes in the midst of our pain. Lord, we know you are the great healer. And we ask that you will bring that healing to them as only you can. You will guide doctors. You will guide others to them that will help them be at peace, to gain in strength, and yes, to be physically healed. We know you can do that. Father God, we are thankful for your love. We are thankful for your faithfulness, your mercy, and your grace. It is in Jesus' holy name that we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you for joining us today. Um, if you are in need of prayer, please play, pray with one of our prayer warriors or grab one of us. If you need anything throughout the week, please call. <laughs> My cell phone is all over the place. Somebody next to you knows it. Okay? Thank you.